Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jerry Hahn from Purdue University Sirius. I'd like to welcome, to the, welcome you to the July 1st session of the Sirius Summer Security Seminar. We're very pleased with the lineup we've had in place, and uh, I think today will be no different. It's a very exciting talk that we're going to hear. Um, these sessions would not be possible without the support of our members of our Sirius Strategic Partnership Program. If you'd like to learn more about Sirius or our partnership program and how your organization may benefit, contact us at info at During the presentation, uh, please keep your line muted. If you have a question, please submit your question via the Q&A function, and uh, we'll be monitoring that and also the raise your hand function, and so we'll try to make sure we get all the questions answered. There will be some time at the end for Q&A. It's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker for today. Jim Richberg's role as a Fortinet CISO leverages his 30 plus years experience in driving innovation in cybersecurity, threat intelligence, and cyber strategy and policy with US government and international partners. Prior to joining Fortinet, he served as the National Intelligence Manager for, senior federal, for the senior federal executive focused on cyber intelligence within the US intelligence community. He led the creation and implementation of cyber strategy for 17 departments and agencies that integrated priorities on cyber threat and served as a senior advisor to the Director of National Intelligence on cyber issues. He brings a broad enterprise level approach to cybersecurity, honed as a member of the executive team which created and oversaw implementation of the multi-billion dollar whole of government comprehensive national cybersecurity initiative that generated new government cyber capability and enhanced cybersecurity in the private sector and critical infrastructure. Jim's broad operational experience, including his 20 years in the CIA, gives him a practical insight into difficult cyber program problems ranging from advanced threat capabilities to supply chain integration and election security. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Jim. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Jerry. Hello, and welcome to this presentation on challenges in the 2020 elections. As I reflect back on the last year, I am struck by what a fast-moving topic this has become. After retiring from government, I have been speaking on the subject of electoral integrity and security since the day after elections ended last November, and I have fundamentally revised the focus of these presentations three times in response to changing national circumstances. The first series focused on illuminating the overall challenges and complexities of electoral integrity, especially the importance of public perception and voter confidence, along with technical cybersecurity. The second series earlier this year talked about how state and local government could leverage the Help America Vote Act, or HAVA, funds appropriated last December to make sorely needed improvements in the cybersecurity posture of their predominantly in-person voting system. Barely three months later, I refocused on how we collectively implement a pivot to mail-in voting at a time of public health concerns and growing resource scarcity in state and local government. You'll hear some of all three themes in this presentation, and I'll be throwing a lot of material out, so I welcome your questions at the end. So let's start with the bona fides. 
why am I talking to you about this subject? I'm not an elected official or an election official, but as Jerry said, I spent 34 years in the federal government building and managing programs, some multi-billion dollar, and worked on defending the U.S. electoral system from potential foreign interference, as you can see from some of the points on the bio slide. I was the senior executive focused on cyber intelligence in the U.S. intelligence community, a federation of 100,000 employees spending $80 billion a year to deal with intelligence. I've helped drive innovation in measuring cybersecurity performance and cyber risk management. Now I'm the CISO for the public sector at Fortinet, a leading cybersecurity firm, so I have an appreciation for the art of the possible from commercial cyber providers. So in short, I bring a broad and varied perspective to bear on this challenging problem. My goal is to catalyze discussion, to help identify challenges, critical dependencies and timelines, and the scale of the needed resources. And if you're watching this and you are an election official, odds are you will need extra resources. Since surveys have estimated that local jurisdictions on average may have only 10 to 20% of the funding needed to implement a dramatic expansion of mail-in voting. So I'm speaking as a former federal official who knows what it's like to be tasked with carrying out unfunded mandates, things you're required to do but are under-resourced to execute. So I'll try to identify approaches to risk management that worked for me as a program manager and some viable technical approaches as well. So what's the agenda for our discussion? Well, I wanna provide some level setting in background first, since I suspect we have a variety of perspectives in the audience for this session. We'll turn to setting the stage, especially some of the facets that I think make election integrity different from other IT security issues. We'll talk about some of the current COVID-19 related challenges, ranging from complexity to cost in the election. And there the takeaway is mass mail-in voting is likely to put stress on what have historically been some of the least robust parts of our election ecosystem. And this is fundamentally a risk management problem. So I'll share recommendations about how to think about this problem how to leverage technology, and some of the potential partnerships that can allow election officials to do more with less. And I think this fundamentally is a problem of doing more with less. I think we face a perfect storm this year. Demand is up. Many voters are already looking to absentee ballots to deal with the public health risks posed by the COVID-19 pandemic. Between the growing number of states that have adopted mail-in voting as their default option and the 30-plus others who have made absentee voting a no-excuse required on-demand option, currently roughly 90% of the electorate, nearly 170 million registered voters, are currently able to decide for themselves if they want to vote by mail. So for election officials, you have largely lost control of whether voters can exercise this option or not. Cost is up. While mail-in voting may bring cost savings in the long term, there certainly are considerable short-term startup costs to ramping it up. Expanded mail-in voting will be expensive. The Brennan Center at New York University's law school has estimated two to four billion dollars as the cost to ramp this up 
not nationwide, but in the majority of the nation. It will require additional hardware, services, process changes, and personnel to execute. The Brennan Center estimates that 90% of this multi-billion dollar bill will fall on local government, localities, to develop the infrastructure needed to support this process, to protect the voters and the election workers in the face of the pandemic, and to educate the public about the fairly dramatic changes to how they participate that are entailed in mail-in voting. Complexity is up. Um, you don't get to shut down your in-person voting e infrastructure and ecosystem entirely. And as a matter of fact, you now have to do more real-time deconfliction and reconciliation of data than under the status quo situation. The security demand is up because, ironically, paper ballots don't make cybersecurity irrelevant, and they can even heighten existing vulnerabilities and interdependencies. And resources are down. State and local governments are already facing accelerated COVID-related revenue shortfalls from property tax and sales tax shortfalls. I've talked to state CIOs who've talked about shortfalls already of up to 10 to 30 percent. Um, this is going to affect elections as well as general government IT. The budget's dropping. They've had to furlough or lay off personnel. So if you're watching this webinar and you're an election official, you really should be taking a hard look, asking yourself the question, can the hardware, the software, the networks, and the business processes that are in place in your election management system handle a dramatic surge in mail-in voting accurately, securely, and in a timely fashion? Now let me step back and make a disclaimer. Unfortunately, expanded absentee mail-in voting has become a polarizing and politicized issue. And I will be describing in this webinar many of the challenges and obstacles posed by rapid expansion of its use this year. But I want to emphasize that neither my employer, Fortinet, nor I are advocating against its use. In fact, its expanded use this year is an inevitability dictated by public health concerns on the part of many voters. My goal in talking about the challenges is to help you think about how to conduct elections efficiently within your available resources and in such a manner that they are perceived as fair, transparent, secure, and safe by the public. So let's start with some of the background. Running elections is an essential service, like policing or public health. You don't get to curtail service or suspend the process no matter how tight your budget gets. This is not a parks and recreation issue. Digital transformation has affected the way we conduct elections in this country over the last 20 years. At a congressional hearing on election security in January, one of the witnesses testified that a typical county election office today depends on computerized systems and software for virtually every aspect from registering voters and conducting the elections through reporting on their outcomes. This dependency on computerization affects both in-person voting as well as absentee and mail-in voting. The challenge in doing this, this computerized process in a normal year is doing it under conditions of fair and open access for participation with a high degree of accuracy for the transactional records, with traceability and accountability for the results, but with the key data, voting records, characterized by a need for absolute secrecy, to have rapid and accurate reporting of the outcome, 
and to do this while targeted by sophisticated foreign adversaries and potential insider risk. And this year, of course, adds particular resource challenges and COVID-related public health concerns. So as you can see from the, the banner at the bottom of the slide, it's no wonder that this issue of doing elections has been termed one of the hardest IT problems any level of government faces. But although running an election is an inherently governmental function, in practice, executing them is wholly dependent on private sector commercial providers. Another witness at that January hearing testified that no jurisdiction did all of the functions enumerated on this slide solely from in-house government resources. As a matter of fact, when you look at the, the point in the middle of the chart on voting machines and systems, they are exclusively private sector. No, part, no government does not manufacture voting machines. So no matter how large or well-staffed a government is, they don't do all of this from on-site government resources. Conversely, at the other end of the spectrum, for smaller juris jurisdictions, they outsource or contract for virtually all of these functions. This heavy private sector contractor involvement comes with a, legit, with a genuine price tag. And this private sector role and the associated costs will extend to mail-in voting infrastructure and may in fact be proportionally greater than they have been under the in-person voting model. And yes, while uh, a government conducting elections can expect to see a drop in their expenses for in-person voting, it's not going to be commensurate with the drop in demand. A lot of these processes and databases have to be built and maintained, whether they're servicing 95% or 5% of the electorate. And as I'll describe later, there are a lot of separate expenses and functions that have to be built to ramp up the online voting. What is the problem that election security has classically been focused on? We spent over 200 years working to ensure that our election system is secured against partisan tampering, against attempts to skew the outcome in a particular direction. We're all familiar with the phrases, stuffing the ballot box, vote early, vote often, and insider threat, which is the reason that you have poll watchers at the precinct representing both major parties. The challenge, as we've seen in recent elections, is that this model of security is not well engineered to resist focused tampering by nation state adversaries who bring greater capabilities like significant cyber capability, who can play a long game such as try to penetrate the supply chain for goods and services associated with the election, who can make a dedicated attempt to attempt to recruit insiders in the process. So this new class of adversaries brings great, greater capability and ironically tend to be focused on a lower bar of success because in most cases we assess they were not trying to tip the balance in favor of a candidate or another so much as undermine the legitimacy of the process, cast doubts about the mandate of the, of the ultimate victor. I'm going to dwell on these other two points in greater depth as we go along, but election integrity is as much, sometimes more, a perception of confidence and public perception as it is of technical reality. This is a very, very complicated problem. As you think about the electoral ecosystem, you probably started by thinking about voting machines. You may have had an expansive view that started to touch on those things that were on the previous slide about voter registration, et cetera. But you probably didn't think about things like 
political parties, local government, uh, the social media and official communications channels for all of those. Those are actually part of the extended electoral ecosystem. For instance, if a malicious actor hijacked the account for a local for local government and sent out an SMS or social media page on the afternoon of election, hours before the polls closed, claiming that due to a number of symptomatic COVID voters who had showed up, the polls were closing early because of public health. Or if someone hijacked the local media account and put out something saying based on exit polling, one party or a candidate had conceded or claimed victory. Things like this could legitimately affect the out could the participation by in-person voters, or it could at least be perceived to have affected people's likelihood of participating. That's how broad the ecosystem is. Now, having laid that one out as a problem, let me say that not everything we have to do in cybersecurity need cost money to fix. Um, something that I would propose if I had Jim Richburg's magic wand of one thing we could all do to increase cybersecurity against this type of deliberate tampering, it would be to say we should all change passwords seven days prior to the election, all meaning all parts of local government, the parties, media, uh, because if we do this, if there are malicious actors who want to do something malicious on election day to skew the outcome in that fashion, they have probably spent months to years acquiring a Rolodex of access, a Rolodex of accounts with user IDs and passwords to come in. They cannot recreate in a week, seven days prior to the election until November 3rd, the accesses that took them that length of time to generate. Uh, this is basic hygiene. This is something we should be doing anyway. And if we synchronize it, we, we can bat, we can put our potential opponents on our on their back foot. And this is something where even if we've talked about it, they know we're going to do it. They still have no time machine. They still can't accelerate recreating it. So this is an example of the way we can talk about dealing with this kind of interdependency and complexity. This is a very, very complicated ecosystem. And it's easy to lose track of the relationships because of all the moving parts. A picture's worth a thousand words. So take a look. This is what the US Election Assistance Commission published in 2017 as a graphic depicting the moving parts of the election system. And as complicated as this is, it's actually incomplete. It's missing some fairly big things like the interstate dimension. There's a way actually of checking to make sure that a voter is not registered to vote in multiple states at the same time. My rule of thumb when I was a, a program manager, a big dollar program manager was, if I couldn't succinctly describe a problem, it was probably going to be difficult to break it down and start solving it. And by that standard, this is gonna be a tough issue because of its sheer complexity. And it only gets more complicated. The functions associated with mail-in voting on this slide are drawn from a timeline that's on the Election Assistance Commission, the EAC's website. Um, there are over 100 items on this timeline that list the notional start dates, the duration to do them, the critical dependencies, and the partnerships involved in them. And some of these items, the timelines would start on the 1st of April. So if you're an election official and you're only really contemplating how to ramp this up now, you're well behind the curve on this. Um, one thing that many people don't realize is that doing 
mail-in balloting, creating and sending those ballots out, uh, that ballot request and processing requires the equivalent of direct mail fulfillment centers. The commercial centers that produce those envelopes that show up in our mailboxes that are full of flyers for various local businesses. Some of those flyers are targeted on our particular neighborhood within our town. Uh, services for restaurants, etc. But imagine having to do something more granular than that to support the election process, because ballots need to be tailored in some cases to each precinct. Because yes, while the major races are the same, depending on where you live, candidates for local races such as school board or city council vary precinct by precinct. Hence, the ballot files that generate these ballots need to be tailored to the precinct and then tracked probably to the voter. As you can imagine, resources to do that are not thick on the ground. Most of those organizations are already under contract to do this for jurisdictions that have gotten in early. So there are critical dependencies and shortfalls in this process. Ballot return is, is significantly complicated as well. Um, I draw your attention to the second bullet from the bottom. Curing, signature curing. Curing is not just for bacon or sick people. When you get a ballot back by mail, it has got the signature of the voter on the outside. You need to validate that signature against one or more exemplars. Those tend to be drawn from electronic records, such as DMV records. It's not always trivial to, to look at these and say there's a match. I don't know anyone who signs something that's um, an electronic pad and, and has looked at it and said, yes, that's exactly the way my pen and ink signature looks. So the more complicated it gets to do that, the more rounds of verification and curation you get into that starts involving multiple sources of data, multiple sources of personal identifying information, PII. Um, and again, as voters need to, who, who claim that or did not get a, a mail-in ballot, even a state where that's the universal practice, have the recourse to show up and vote in person. In many cases, you need to find a way to verify that this person has not voted by mail prior to the election or allow them to vote provisionally on election day, which means their ballot goes into a sealed envelope with their name and the reason they're doing it. So my point in all of this is there's a lot of additional complexity that comes with this ramp up to doing this by mail. Second key challenge, which I've alluded to already, is the role of public perception in this. I first ran, in, ran smack into this 15 years ago when we were asked to assess uh, the implications of a foreign country not friendly to the United States potentially buying some of our voting ecosystem. Uh, and we looked at it and said, for the short to medium term, to find us multiple years, there's really no risk that this, this semi-hostile country can do anything that would affect US elections. And the policymaker said, yes, but inevitably there will be an upset election somewhere in the ecosystem that this company is supporting and how do we refute a negative? How do we deal with a claim by this actor that they affected an outcome? And we said, hmm, you're right. There, there is a genuine difference in this case between what your technical evidence, your technical investigation shows and the court of public opinion. And that's why I think it's important to distinguish between these different categories of threat activity. What, what I'm looking at a breach. I'm, I'm investigating a claim of a breach. I want to 
refute that something that is claimed has no basis in reality. We talk about paper ballots and paper records as the gold standard, the best practice in voting. You can actually configure cybersecurity to create analogs in some cases for this. For instance, when an intruder succeeds in breaching a network and penetrating the network, one of the first things they typically will do is try to get privilege escalations, become a system administrator, go in and cover their tracks. Go to the firewall, edit the activity log to remove any traces that they got in and did something illicit. There are, however, some firewalls that either by default or by configuration can be set up so that you can't edit that kind of log. The worst you can do is delete it, which would be a, a telling indicator that something bad happened. So what you can do is do some configuration that will allow you to have an, an ability to start to get to ground truth in looking at this. Uh, and this whole issue starts to point out, and I'll talk about it a little more later as well, that co-equal with incident response planning is having a communications plan, a strategic communications plan, because it's not good enough to say, okay, someone claims they breached my database, we'll look into it and get back to you next month or the month thereafter with our assessment of whether that was in fact credible and whether that happened. In the court of public opinion, given the narrative around election integrity, that's not frankly a viable um, position to be in. I'm going to return to some more material that was covered in that January hearing. If you start looking at these quotes, they start talking about concepts such as resilience, recovery. They start to tee up risk management and why it is something that policymakers increasingly recognize is the way to think about cybersecurity in the election context and election security because perfect security for elections and cyber are, are both impossible. Uh, the line at the bottom in bold is not in fact from the hearing, but it's one that's been circulating among election officials for years, along with the, the phrase, election security is a race without a finish line. And, and this one's important because the reality is election officials have to incrementally upgrade. You, or in an off year, you could build a system and then cut over, but the reality is that's seldom, if ever, the way it happens. So you have to be able to change this behemoth of a voting system while it's a work in progress. And this all points to risk management as the key to solving this. And I've been dealing with risk management for many years. There are many models for doing it, but this is the simplest. So you essentially start by saying, what do I care about? I mean, what are the assets that, that are important to me? Uh, step two, what could threaten them and how could I avoid these adverse consequences? All right, once I've identified those avoidance measures, I wanna implement them. And then I wanna repeat the cycle uh, because hopefully at least my vulnerability uh, has started to drop. Uh, but that's the simplest way to do it. I think given the complexities of uh, election security, you need to take a hard-headed approach to risk management. You can't spend your way to success. And if you look at the calendar, we're short on time, certainly for November. And while an election official is responsible for the integrity of the whole process, taking a risk management approach like this facilitates breaking the problem down into bite-sized chunks. And in my time as a, as a program manager, I found two approaches to thinking about risk management that tended to work. And, and this is the first one, which to start from, okay, what part of the problem do I own or am I responsible for? 
You're probably familiar with the Center for Internet Security, CIS. They put out best practices and assessment standards for much of the field of cybersecurity. CIS also chairs the Election Integrity ISAC, the Information Sharing and Analysis Center. And in their election-focused work, they created this simpler model, which I think is an alternative to that Election Assistance Commission I-chart that I showed you earlier. Uh, the reality is there are 50 different models for how election systems work because no two states have got exactly the same legal landscape, same mix of technologies implemented either for voting or for cybersecurity. And that's what complicates framing a response to this. Because when you talk to a system engineer, when you talk to a system architect, typically one of the first things they'll say is give me a reference architecture for the status quo so I can see how to fix it. And let's start and look at the first box up here in the lower in the upper left, voter registration. Well the reality is in many states the data for voter registration comes from state sources such as the Division of Motor Vehicles. In other states, it comes from local data, such as property tax or citizen enrollment to become registered voters. In other cases, it's a hybrid for data. Uh, so already we have three different models for the sourcing of data for one block on this functional chart. But regardless of whose data it is, the state, and, and state functions are denoted in blue here, purple denotes local government functions, red denotes something that both local and state government do. Voter registration is coded blue because regardless of whose data it is, the state is responsible for curating it, for keeping its accuracy, and more importantly in this case, it's for its security. From that, local jurisdictions generate poll books. What registered voter should be voting in what precinct? That's what they use both on election day and in the case of mail-in voting, that's what they use to prepare that tailored ballot to that voter in that precinct with those local races. Local jurisdictions are responsible for the actual voting process, whether it's the voting machines, creating the ballot files and loading them, for the voting tabulation coming out of it, for the actual mechanics of the mail-in voting process. Uh, both levels of government provide election reporting. Um, now, what are those things called election management systems, EMS? I've denoted that both state and local government have them. Um, these may be integrated turnkey products or an accretion of commercial products, such as database and messaging products, but in either event, they carry out back-end functions associated with supporting the election process. State-level election management systems typically perform such functions as absentee ballot tracking in the case of military and overseas voters, aggregating local jurisdictions' vote tabulations, and generating the data for that election night reporting. Local jurisdiction election management systems often include designing and building those ballots tailored to each precinct, programming the vote capture devices, tabulating the data that comes out of, out of the devices, reporting and running the absentee and ballot management process. I dwelt on the election management systems because numerous election officials, both state and local, have told me that in their experience, the performance and security of the election management systems has often been the most problematic aspect of the election process. And that EMS is especially problem prone in tracking and handling absentee ballots, failing to log all 
outgoing or incoming traffic or validating its integrity or, or accuracy. And of course, that's the mode of voting that is surging in this election cycle. So one approach to risk management is what part of the problem is ultimately mine to fix. Second way to think about it is that classic, what keeps you awake at night. If you're an election official, start from the high profile worst case outcomes you want to avoid because they help you identify assets and threat activity that you want to avoid. And these are four that I think capture broadly speaking the election issue. Certainly this first one has been top of mind for many state level officials when there has been a report of a breach of the registration database. Did it occur? If it occurred, did the intruders copy data? Even worse, did they manipulate the integrity of data that was there? For local government, it's often voters who don't get to cast in-person ballots. They're trying to avoid the news footage of lines wrapping around the door, not because of demand, but because of processing problems. Um, I think we're increasingly seeing that there are a range of problems that are more specific to mail-in and absentee voting. The first of those three in the list of promptly, accurately, or safely, we've already seen play out in the primaries where states have in some cases been one to two weeks after the close of primary voting before they can even report a result. It's adding a new definition to what we mean by, uh, by timely, by promptly. And then producing inconsistent or erratic results on election night. These tend to be four classes of action that that government officials tend to worry the most about occurring. Um, and while all of these are embarrassing and high profile, I would note that some of these are fundamentally recoverable and some of them are non-recoverable. Uh, an example of something that's non-recoverable is something that keeps a registered voter from being able to participate, from disenfranchising them. On the other hand, something that affects timeliness or the accuracy, assuming you have the source data uh, and can go back and do a recount, is a recoverable error. Um, and if you don't have the resources to fix all of your problems simultaneously, it's worth keeping this distinction in mind as you set your priorities. So here are my recommendations for thinking about risk management. Um, and the first is to make that, do that balance between the high profile and embarrassing outcomes that you can work through with those that are irreversible. In the mail-in process, losing track of a ballot request or of a returned ballot until after the election returns have been finalized is a non-recoverable error. Having to recure contested provisional in-person ballots or the signatures on mail-in ballots is recoverable, assuming you can keep the data. What do I mean by converting them to non-recoverable errors? Well, I'm not sure that I would call it necessarily uh, converting it, but it certainly is an example of, of minimizing its impact, but breach is an example of that class of activity. No one in the cybersecurity community can offer you a service that is a time machine, so no one can make a breach that occurred not happen. But smart IT and cybersecurity decisions could minimize or even neutralize its impact. You're probably familiar with the concept of zero trust network access. If a state had started to implement zero trust principles in its voter registration database, a breach might mean that when a someone who claimed to be from a jurisdiction, which is actually hijacked and it was a malicious actor, came in, 
least uh, zero trust and least privilege necessary would mean that they would only touch data for their jurisdiction. They wouldn't have carte blanche to the entire database. If they were coming in to compile the poll books, which is a read function, they wouldn't have been granted write access. So there may be ways where you could minimize the extent of the activity that they could that they could have undertaken. And if you had implemented strong audit, which is also a part of zero trust, you might actually have the ability to track the activity. And if you had good backup to actually unwind it. So that's an example of being able to focus on minimizing that kind of damage. Identify the issues where you can simply throw more resources at it and succeed and when it makes more sense to talk about a change in something fundamental. Um, a process of manual work on absentee mail-in ballot, absentee ballots that may have constituted three, per, three to five percent of your voting population, which is a fairly typical number, may not work when all of a sudden we're talking about 55 or 75 percent of your voting population voting that same way. At that point, you need to start talking about how to harness automation, uh, when you need automated equipment, and frankly, at some point, if simply adding more servers, pulling more lines for more bandwidth doesn't make as much sense as saying it's time to look for cloud-based options. Contingency planning. Uh, it's been estimated, as I've said, that it could be a $4 billion, with a B, dollar bill to implement this. $400 million was appropriated in the March CARES Act for election security. It's a $3.6 billion delta there. There, coincidentally, was $3.6 billion in a House bill that didn't move in the Senate last month. But if the federal government does appropriate additional money in the near term, now is the time for local government to start figuring out how to spend it effectively and to complement existing efforts. When the money shows up, it's not the time to start thinking about that. That's the time to start cutting the checks to put it to work on contingencies that you've already thought through now. And because of the complexity of the issue, because of the fact that there are 50 different roadmaps, um, and frankly, local government often doesn't have the expertise in either cybersecurity or in the nuances of voting technology, finding a trusted advisor to help is I think critical on this. Someone, and it need not be a person, it can be a team who knows the political landscape, someone who knows the technology, and someone who knows the options. Does our state have the option to do shared services? For instance, a common subscription to something on threat intelligence to do endpoint solutions that would map across jurisdictions. And the, the final consideration on risk management is identify those where timeliness is really essential in your response uh, or and those where you have got a little bit more time to think it through. Um, I've already talked about the importance of having strategic communications plan. Um, a good way to start framing this issue is to do tabletop exercises, which can literally be the stakeholders getting together and working through scenarios. It doesn't have to be a simulation with computers. It can literally be saying we're starting from the assumption that X has happened, who are the stakeholders, who does what. Um, as you start thinking through the communications dimension, the Belfer Center 
at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government has put together good communications guide and a template, which is a good starting point for thinking about this. The Belfer Center has a number of former government officials, a number of industry experts, and a number of folks who come from media who have been able to provide for local jurisdictions what I think is frankly a good starting point for thinking about how to handle some of these time sensitive issues. Um, and, and now as we think about solutioning, um, automation is going to be key to helping deal with this problem. Um, frankly, let, we talked in government about never let a good crisis go to waste. This could be the impetus for the next iteration of digital transformation in government services. So I really think this is an opportunity for state and certainly for local government to look for innovative IT solutions. And innovative doesn't mean novel, doesn't mean over the horizon. It simply means things that are gaining currency, are, have become validated in the private sector, but where government lags in their implementation. That means things like secure cloud or secure multi-cloud operating environments or software-defined networking. I'm going to stick with software-defined networking throughout this particular slide. Um, software-defined networking, especially in its forms of software-defined wide area networking, SD-WAN or, so or SD-Branch, can give you efficient networking and connectivity. It's cheaper, it's more flexible, it typically comes with a better user experience, it's more responsive, and depending on your circumstances, a local government can probably use this for non-election government IT purposes as well. In other words, buy it once and use it repeatedly. Look for dual purpose or at least multi, dual use multi-purpose solutions on this and, and make sure that cybersecurity is one of those purposes. Now, I'm trying to be a realist. Here I am coming from the cybersecurity industry, but having been a, a big program manager, I know that if you don't have the money to do everything, one of the things that gets left undone invariably will be security. If it comes down to the trade-off between performance to being able to kludge together a system to meet the mission need or delivering half a loaf in a secure fashion or in twice the length of time, you're going to go with option A. You're going to run security risks because that's what you have to do. So find a way of having core IT solutions where security is an integral part of the whole. And I'll stick with SD-WAN for that example. SD-WAN exists in three flavors. SD-WAN, of course, is a way of saying, if we no longer have a server or a network perimeter, we can, we can basically make a software-defined local area network where everything connects directly to the internet. So we can use whatever path. We can use dedicated MPLS T1 lines. We can use broadband. We can use whatever. Uh, it, it, we're connecting to the internet and then creating the network on that basis. Well, a pure SD-WAN solution ignores security. And I think we're now 30 years into a narrative of saying connecting directly to the internet without any perimeter, without any kind of intervening firewall, we all know what can go wrong with that. So we started seeing hybrid solutions where you now add some intervening device either on premise or something before you hit the broader internet that becomes the traffic aggregator, the, the function. Well, the newer generation is to say there could be products that are intrinsically organically secure. 
they depends use a metaphor it depends on which end of the box for the product I'm looking for one end describes it as a firewall that does secure network and the other end of the box talks about it as a networking device that has firewall functions but this allows you to both have your cake and eat it too and because these tend to be a newer class of device they're in this case they often are better at networking and better at security so there are ways of saying if I can't spend separate money on security at least I can go for these innovative solutions that are giving me security as one of the included functions but at the end of the day there are still going to be some things that are irreducibly about security for instance whether I go with a software defined network or a secure cloud I'm still left with endpoints and I still have to figure out how to secure those endpoints or I still need to secure my connection to that cloud so this is one where I would say find that trusted partner to help you identify your essentials in security if in the perfect world I would secure the the network end of a conversation, the remote user end, and encrypt the data in between. Well, if I don't have the resources to do all of these, let me prioritize securing the database end, and let me say I'm going to configure the connection so that I'm not going to take a connection from a device that isn't patched, that doesn't run some kind of endpoint security, and that isn't offering me some kind of VPN or encrypted connection. In other words, I'd love to solve everything, but if I can't solve everything, at least I'm going to say I'm not going to talk to things that aren't secure. That's an example of the kind of dialogue a trusted partner could help a state or local government especially come to. Take advantage of the ongoing device consolidation. You may say, look, I need to replace my firewall if I replace it with the next generation firewall it may actually replace six or seven things in my security ecosystem look for solutions that tend to be no maintenance or low maintenance um, the reality is roughly a third of the jurisdictions in this country that conduct voting don't have IT staff in government they receive IT services on a remote desktop basis as a contract service from somewhere else. So if you are one of those parts of local government that doesn't even have IT, that doesn't even have dedicated close support staff, asking you to run a cyber solution that requires physical interaction, that requires on-site expertise is a tough risk lift so look for solutions where it's done remotely where it's done in an automated fashion over the last four or five years the, the vendor community the the OEMs of capability have all started coming up with with technology ecosystems that cover the endpoint that cover the firewall that cover the cloud that cover the access points for IOT they're instrumenting everything they're pulling the data back to using uh, AI and machine learning big data analytics to make sense of what they're seeing in a very fast fashion and to be able to push out responses in an animated in, a, in an automated fashion the reality is there are only a handful of these ecosystems that are out there they belong to the the big vendors if you're a cash strapped local government and you're making three security investments pick an ecosystem stick with an ecosystem um, buying doing three upgrades having them come from three separate ecosystems doesn't give you defense in depth it leaves the synergy that could come from being in one ecosystem as as um, an opportunity cost you have just paid without thinking 
and look for the and look for this partner who can help you maximize the interoperability um, in in the solutions you've got. We all know there's solution complexity, there's vendor overload. You've got the typical enterprise with possibly 30 separate security solutions. You want to start consolidating them. So this is a slide that's told from the perspective of local government because that's where the rubber meets the road in actually conducting elections. Um, federal government is going to be key in this. Um, I think funding is going to be key in being able to implement this pivot to mail-in voting. Um, if we don't get more money, I'm frankly hard-pressed to see how we're going to produce timely um, and accurate results uh, in November. So hopefully there will be additional funding coming from the federal government, but also their source of expertise, best practices, um, instruments such as law enforcement, my former brethren doing foreign intelligence collection. I've already talked about why I think the states have critical mass and are a key nexus in this, both in terms of potential expertise, there's no state that's too small to develop that kind of expertise to be able to be that kind of trusted advisor to localities. They have the ability at the state level to set the operating conditions for uh, for much of this. We've talked about the complexities of the mail-in voting process. In some states, Jurisdictions are allowed to process these return ballots in a serial fashion as they come in. In other states, they have said you have to wait until election day to start processing them. In states in that latter category, they could have a discussion about whether they want to change the law and remove that artificial bottleneck to processing. Could be pros and cons, they might decide not to do it, but that's the kind of lever that states bring to this. Nonprofits are a great source of impartial advice and expertise on this. The vendor community, just as vendors have been the key to doing in-person voting, the vendor community is really generating the products and services that are going to be needed to pull off this pivot to mail-in voting and its greater emphasis on cybersecurity. And the burden really is going to be on them to come up with the solutions that are going to be affordable and interoperable. And there's a lot that really needs to be done on voter education, education and outreach. Um, with the pivot to mail-in voting, sensitize, train them as to what the process looks like, when they should uh, be concerned that they haven't received a mail-in ballot, who they should raise that concern with, if they're voting in person, how they should check their polling place prior to election day. This is a presentation for Sirius. We've covered a lot of material. So I'm not going to do a recap on everything. I'm going to just focus a little bit on the cybersecurity issues. We've talked a lot about risk management. This really is fundamentally a risk management issue. The military talks about fight as you train. Uh, certainly this is an issue where you want to do the development uh, of, of your plans. You want to figure out how do I do incident response, how do I do recovery, and what does the communications plan that goes with those technical plans go with. There are best practices about provide, requiring training for pretty much everyone involved in the process, uh, best practices about basic cyber hygiene, and again, here we are in, in, in the COVID pandemic, I would add public health to that one as well. Another best practice is around continuous monitoring of everything that's internet accessible. Note I said internet accessible, not connected. Virtually every part of the election ecosystem is at least touching a component that is connected to the internet or, or uses removable media. Therefore, pretty much everything in, that, that we're talking about is internet accessible. I think we've made the case for why mail-in voting doesn't actually negate the need for cybersecurity. There's more functional networking and interdependency 
uh, now than there is in a purely paper, uh, a purely in-person voting system. And you really have to leverage these external resources and look for ways of, of maximizing efficiency. So I'm going to end on this slide. It, it, it has links if this is in hyperlink available form, or at least citations to some of the organizations that I've talked about in here, uh, the centers, the EAC, et cetera. Um, there are, if you're an election official, I think you can take it as a given that every one of the partners that I identified on that previous slide genuinely wants to help. You're not alone in, in trying to solve this problem. And despite the way this whole issue of, of mail-in voting has become politicized, uh, despite the budgetary constraints, despite the challenges that are out there, this is an issue where we collectively cannot afford to fail. Uh, to end as I began, from my intelligence community background, this cannot be mission impossible. The American people expect and deserve free, fair, secure, and safe elections. I know I've covered a lot of material in this session. Thank you for bearing with me. Thank you for your attention. And I welcome your questions now by chat or by email at the address on the slide. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for a great presentation today. Very timely, covering uh, two topics on the top of everybody's mind these days, both the election and the, uh, and the age of COVID. So. I appreciate your time and, and energy. If there are questions, uh, please uh, take some time right now to uh, type them into the Q&A function or raise your hand and we'll, uh, we'll get your microphone activated so you could, you could ask a question. Uh, while you're thinking about questions, I will let you know that uh, these sessions will be recorded and you'll be able to, to uh, see them on our uh, Sirius website. So you will have an opportunity within a few days to, uh, to watch a replay or or tell your friends about it and have them take a take a look at the replay. Are there any questions out there for Jim? Yeah, I do not see any. Mike, do you see any uh, questions that have popped up anywhere? Um, no, I don't. But Jim, I was wondering, like, what you thought about, you know, as different municipalities like hire different vendors like what, what's I don't know what what's better to like have them go and get their own kind of vendor or if like one kind of vendor was used by everybody kind of like like if we had some kind of evil corp situation thing where all the eggs were in one basket like what, what do you think would be better in that or is there any uh, drawbacks to either one well um my, I, I think I characterize it two ways. Yes, I think it would be better if jurisdictions were using one solution because they they'll get synergy. You know, what what hits one would be sensed, and and the others would be able to make sense of it. This is frankly something where the state can either provide the service. In some cases, they've taken HAVA money or or money that's come from other federal appropriations and they've bought licenses, whether for firewalls, whether for endpoint. Uh, they've said, look, we want that kind of genuine interoperability. And and, and my, my point about platform was, uh, you may be familiar with NSS Labs, which is probably the closest thing we have to either a consumer reports or an underwriter's laboratory for cybersecurity. Last year, they tested the efficacy of breach prevention systems. And 
and a um, study came out in August of last year, and it basically provided, it's a torture test, it basically provided um, empirical proof that integrated technology suites from any one vendor, you know, there are half a dozen in the ecosystem, but pretty much everybody's integrated suite outperformed point products, best of breed point products. So, you know, this is one where having a, a plethora of approaches doesn't give you synergy. In, this, in that case, the sum is only as good as the best part, as opposed to saying the sum is, is actually something where there's synergy. So I would say picking an approach, picking a vendor, probably as a state level solution, is gonna give you more bang for the buck than everybody buying their own and figuring out how to do manual, because manual processing is one of the things that's been killing us in cybersecurity you know, for, for, for decades now. We don't have enough people to deal with processes manually. Automation is the way to go. Automation, yes, sticks and taxi means Things from different ecosystems can talk at one level. That's not the same thing as being genuinely interoperable with each other. So there's validation. The approach is good. Pick one. You know, I work from, I come from one vendor. There are other ecosystems out there, but just don't, you know, buying into three different ones doesn't mean you have defense in depth. It just means you're only as good as the best of those particular components. Not saying, okay, we now are much better against advanced persistent threats, which is re read the NSS study. It actually showed that when you put the synergy together, they become really efficient against looking at for things like zero days and obfuscation. Not perfect, but significantly better than best of breed point products. Jim, we've got a couple of questions. First one comes from Michelle. If there were one thing a local government could do within the next month, what would it be? Or even a state for that matter, if there were one thing. Um, I, I think I need you to character. I, I need a little more qualification from Michelle about what that is. Whether this is ramping up security, whether this is scaling up to support mail-in voting, because that's where I'm starting right now is helping these people get to yes of oh my God, I do not have the money to do this and report out before Christmas. That's kind of a top of mind problem for me. So so I need I need a little more elaboration on which which problem we're fixing. Her, her response to you is to move toward a better security posture this year, so a security posture. To move, well, then I think I would, I would do that. Pick one of these ecosystems. Pick First, find your advisor who can help you figure out what is the top of the most compelling problem for you because the most visible one may not be the most impactful, may not be the easiest to fix. So pick that, pick that partner first and then figure out how to, how to buy down the risk on the most pressing part of your cyber landscape. You know, whether it's, yeah. Okay, great, thanks. And we have a, uh, we have a, a local question. This is coming from uh, Michael here in Tippecanoe County, Indiana. Uh, our primary in Tippecanoe County this year uh, disenfranchised voters due to capacity limitations in the U.S. Postal Service. Requested absentee ballots did not get delivered. Ballots were late getting back to the vote office. How do you deal with external support services in an effective manner? Um, and those actually, yes, that on that EAC timeline, having the dialogue with the U.S. Postal Service is one of those things that they said start in early April. That mm -hmm. because that is a long pole in the tent. Uh, those are those are the external dependencies that can break the system. Mm -hmm. um, so look at the EAC timeline because that's that's one of them. I can virtually guarantee there are others that are going to pop up 
in the context of November when capacity is even greater and when you're turning around sending out ballots in October that you expect to come back at much greater volume. It's a known problem. We'll have to change one of the, the uh, comments you made earlier in your slide where instead of vote early and vote often, in this case, you vote early, but not often. Yep. And again, and that's something that 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 state government uh, can control, too, is how early can you send out that ballot? You know, the earlier you send it out, the more time you have for people to come back. But we know people procrastinate. Yep. So there's going to be that that surge. Great. Well, perfect. Um, I think that's all the questions I see. And uh, we're right at the top of the hour. So uh, with that, uh, I really want to thank you, Jim, for taking the time. I want to thank Fortinet for allowing you to present to us today. It was great. And uh, we appreciate the time. And uh, as I said to everyone, we'll be uh, posting these soon on our website. Uh, next week on uh, July 8th, we're going to welcome Dr. Ashish Kundu. Uh, he's uh, got a great background, and it all started with his PhD at Purdue University. So he's going to talk about trust in autonomous vehicles. So I think we'll have another good session next week. And uh, hopefully, we'll see you all next week.